0: Shit Plotipus Says, episode 55. Hello, welcome to a new episode of Shit Platypus Says, the commentary on the commentary on the left. My name is Pamela Nogales, I'm one of your co-hosts. First things first, the Platypus International Convention, the 15th annual international convention is happening very soon, March 30th to April 2nd in Chicago, Illinois at the University of Chicago, Northwestern University and at the School of the Art Institutes. There will be events happening as early as Thursday. I will be speaking on a panel with esteemed Plotfist members on the legacy of socialism in America. There will be many panels, interviews, workshops, social events being planned. There's a Night of the Avant-Garde performance on Thursday night. We are all very excited about that. There will be a party, there will be gatherings, there will be libations, and there will be, most importantly, quite serious conversation about the state of the left today and the future. Platypus members all over the world are flying in for this event. This is our most important event of the year and really sets the tone for the rest of our work until the following convention in 2024. We encourage any and all listeners, curious, people out there to come participate, ask questions, uh, raise some hell, and think through the problems that we are all facing today on the left. If you'd like to learn more about the convention and the schedule, I will link the program in the episode description. It can also be found at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. The first segment of this episode is dedicated to our convention. Convention planning committee members, Ethan and Ryan, sit down to discuss the theme for the convention, history and class consciousness, the different panels we've got planned, as well as speakers, and historical issues we'll be engaging throughout, so stay tuned for that. In the second part of the episode, our co-hosts Rebecca and Lisa talked to our members Sunit and Farsad on the occasion of the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. They reflect on the panels Platypus did on the Ukraine crisis a year ago and refer back to the past and recent developments of the anti-imperialist and anti-fascist left. They also consider the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq and go back to the founding moment of Platypus, the very first panel, Imperialism, What Is It? Why Should We Be Against It? from 2007. It has been that long we hope that you'll join us at our convention we are very much looking forward to it as you can tell we are all very excited personally i'm very excited to host it here in chicago where we began this project almost 17 years ago i'll see you there enjoy the episode
1: Hi, everybody. My name is Ethan. I'm in the Platypus chapter in Tampa, Florida, and this year I'm the convention planning chair. And I'm Ryan. I'm in the Melbourne chapter, Melbourne,
2: Australia, and I'm the programming chair for this year's Platypus convention. This is the 15th annual international convention of the Platypus Affiliated Society, and it will take place from Tuesday, March 28th, 2023, through Saturday, April 1st in Chicago, Illinois, USA, with the main events happening on the Friday and Saturday, and some strictly internal members-only events happening on Sunday. Every evening concludes with an after-party of some sort, so there'll be plenty of chance to meet and mingle with Platypus members from all around the world, and how many panelists and contacts there are in attendance. The public is invited to all our main events, and they're usually bangers.
1: And really, the convention, it helps bring our reading group syllabus to life. When we're comparing the history we learn about in the reading group to the conversation we're hosting at the convention, we can really see what is present and what is absent on the left today. Building on last year, uh,
2: 2022 was our first person convention since 2019, and it was a huge success. Our largest audiences uh, we had had in a long time filled the rooms, uh, but it was unfortunately a subjudifer coming out of covid This year, we are planning our biggest ever convention with some events, even on the Tuesday. Uh, We've never had a week-long convention, but we got so much enthusiasm from the left and from our members, uh, we had to fit them somewhere into the schedule. This year's theme is history and class consciousness, uh, which sort of celebrates and reminds us of the importance of Jörg Lukács' 1923 text of the same name. Uh, this work was particularly written to clarify the meaning of the events of 1917 and, and the German Revolution of 1919, but also the, the sort of retreat that took place after those years. And so in general, we want this convention to reflect on three particular moments of retreat in the left, beginning with Lukács' 1923 moment, but also 50 years later in 1973, where the left was sort of struck by how much the events of 1968 didn't manifest into a second revolutionary wave where there was kind of an expectation that 1968 was to 1905 and then there'd be maybe some kind of second revolution that would be much more grander scale in the 70s or even 1980. And that never materialised. And so the left in the 70s was struggling to find registration of its ideas amongst the broader masses We think of the phenomena of the new left during this period, the sort of crack up of Maoism, particularly around the death of Mao in 1976. We've tried to incorporate those into our convention this year. And the last moment, of course, is our current moment, 2023, which follows several years after the social democratic and the neo-social democratic moment of 2016. We think of moments like the Bernie Sanders campaign, Syriza and Jeremy Corbyn's neo-social democracy in the UK the millennial left of today finds itself disoriented amongst the failure to be able to transform any of the big capitalist parties or start new parties that could engage in capitalist politics in any way that could go beyond just reproducing the old pathologies that sort of maybe manifested for the first time in the 70s the theme history and class consciousness measures but these all these three periods of retreat but also tries to point out potential repetitions of those defeats that happen 50 years or two generations later.
1: Right. Well, Ryan, you mentioned repeating past mistakes. And and this theme of repetition is really a a platypusism, if you will. Platypus is hosting the conversation on the left. But when we're hosting that conversation, we're not trying to harp on defeat and and just talk about, oh, the left has failed. I think you could really get many on the left to admit that on some level, we have failed. I mean, after all, we're not living in socialism. Certainly seeing that being registered in the millennial left today, that
2: there is sort of turns to the post left, there are sort of much deeper reflections on what the DSA moment was, what Corbyn was. uh, And so we're trying to provoke that conversation in our convention this year.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And it's really, it's not just that we failed, it's it's the unique role of platypus to bring out how we failed. It's not just that mistakes were made, uh, but the same mistakes keep being made. You know, each generation, I know this was true when I first encountered the left, um, you know, circa 2015, 2016. I'm sure it was true for many other platypus members. I, I knew that my generation, we thought we were trying something for the first time. We were trying something new, right? Right. Uh, But the truth is that so many of these strategies have already been tried. So many of these ideas that I thought were new have already been thought many, many years ago. And the historical knowledge of all of those experiments has not been adequately transmitted. And so platypus, you know, we're not trying to pose as smarter than anyone. We're not saying, oh, we know what should have been done differently in the past. We know what would have turned into a success. No, we just want to call it a defeat and admit that there have been some repeating patterns that we just haven't learned from yet. And we we need to stop coming up with sophisticated ways of ignoring that or forgetting that. Uh, that's going to prevent us from ever accomplishing an emancipatory society. And I think all of our panelists want that. We've had these ideological obstacles, and we have to work through that. And the first step to that is just not lying about it. It's admitting where we're at in history.
2: Certainly. And there's also a sense in which some of those repeated failures were necessary in that, for example, the DSA only ended up reproducing the kind of sectarianism that plagued the left 50 years earlier. So it's not just that there's like a recurring defeat, but the actual problems that the left encounter are actually necessary problems that it has to confront aware of its history rather than just thinking, taking sort of all bets are off, let's try things new, you know, let's forget about the old failures and the old problems because there's something essential and necessary in the problems that the left encounters. The first panel that really engages with this history is a panel called Wither Maoism, And so we're noticing around the world that as Generation Z, the Zoomers come of age, we're seeing a lot of young people drawn to Maoism, but in a way that doesn't really grasp with the old Maoism and sort of the the kind of disintegration, and the fragmentation of Maoism that took place in the, the 70s. And so we hope to sort of bring up some of that history about how is the new Maoism engaging with the old Maoism? Why is Maoism experiencing a rebirth today? What is it about the present that renders some plausibility to to Maoism?
1: I'm very excited for the generational representation, I guess, on the panel. We're going to have uh, a Zoomer in conversation with people who were there in the 70s. So it should be awesome Mm -hmm. to transmit some uh, history into the present.
2: Particularly, we'll have Norman Finkelstein, who was a Maoist in the, the 70s, but sort of pronounced his nowism. And uh, he has a lot of reflection on that period to share with the next generation.
1: Another panel we're going to have at the convention this year is on labor and the left. And it constellates again with the 1970s, that 1973 date, but it also has relevance for 2023. If you think back to the 1970s, a lot of the new left had this perspective that got a name later Uh, called the rank-and-file strategy. And there were all sorts of socialists and Marxist intellectuals that, uh, in a turn to industry, decided to join working-class sectors, try to strategically uh, get employment as more working-class people, and they thought that that was going to lead towards an independent class politics. So much of the new left did that. And strangely enough, 50 years later, we're still encountering the rank and file strategy. There's almost a kind of resurgence. The Jacobin Show has had various conversations on this um, with old representatives from this time period like Mark Dudzik. You know, we're going through a new generation of the left that is looking back towards the old generation. There, You know, there's an apparent repetition where... The young people today, they're turning to this older generation for guidance, and Platypus wants to be the ones to point that out. We want to ask what that means. Why is it that we've got this latter-day revival, and what can we learn from the last 50 years um, about labor organizing, and what does all that mean for socialist politics today?
2: You're certainly saying... For example, a, a centralization of the big union activity in America amongst the left, for example, the Amazon strikes and the Amazon protests. Maybe a couple of years ago, there was a big hope that the various Amazon unionisation efforts would be a restarting point for the, the left's engagement with union organising, perhaps, you know, a different generation of union organising amongst these new mega-facilities so there's and there's also something we've been seeing in Australia that the the young Zoomer left have been very critical of their the old unions and have actually started new unions, sort of more radical unions targeting, say, retail workers, fast food workers and, and the unemployed.
1: Uh, this moment, I think it's super important to really get at the politics of work and the politics of labor. I know, uh, at least in America, we've had strikes on college campuses going the whole country over. Uh, California um, had a whole system-wide strike going on. Uh, New York also saw some of this on campuses for adjunct uh, pay and and student pay. In Europe, there's been various uh, protests and events on the cost of living and uh, living conditions. And do people have enough employment to have a decent standard of living. There's also,
2: particularly in the UK, there's been the, the sort of the, the rising to celebrity status of the, the leaders of the various RMT strikes and the, the the rail strikes in the UK that has led to sort of a, a readjustment by the left, whereas these some of these figures, particularly someone like Eddie Dempsey, who was sort of pro-Brexit and and outcast from the left for a lot of say, positions five years ago, four or five years ago, now is sort of hailed as the hero of the next wave of younger union leaders who can actually point a way forward out of the political impasse between Labor, the Labour Party and the Labour movement. So that that brings us on to our next panel, which will be on the politics of the democratic socialists of America, and particularly, as I was mentioning before, the millennial crack-up that is taking place post the 2016 election that the millennial left really failed to manifest any kind of new politics outside of the Democratic Party and inside, outside of the Labour Party in the UK. Coming outside of those big capitalist party organisations, the left has struggled to find any real traction. They have elected, so example, groups like the Squad, AOC, but then recently the Squad ended up voting for the Ukraine war and against the rail strikes, and the left now is really the DSA left is, has become quite disenfranchised with who they thought was once their great hope similarly in the in the UK that now that the momentum movement had put their energy inside uh, corbyn corbyn's now sort of on the verge of being expelled from the labor party and that the left is sort of again wondering what can be done this panel is about the DSA particularly but it's also about the repetition of the 70s DSA the, the founding of the Democratic Socialists of America and DSOC and the, the new form of the DSA, the millennial form. So we're particularly happy to have Harold Myerson, who was a 70s Harringtonite member of DSOC and was there sort of during the founding years of the Democratic Socialist Project in America in conversation with some newer members of the DSA, particularly the Marxist Unity Group. So it's going to be a, hopefully a very... A relevant conversation, but also one that isn't just focused to America, that will actually have relevance for the UK as well.
1: We've seen various caucuses in the DSA uh, sort of put up a fight against the mainstream in the DSA. And um, some of those caucuses have even left the DSA. So we're going, for example, to have a member of Class Unity on this panel. And we're also going to have a member of Marxist Unity Group um, who are still firmly within the DSA, but they're sort of trying to push it in a different direction. Um, They're going to be reflecting on what has happened to the DSA, you know, in, in the Biden years, we've seen some significant events like the intellectual leadership of Jacobin magazine, Bhaskar Sankara, took a major role with the nation magazine. Um, We've also seen what was a mainstay on YouTube, the Jacobin show uh, that came to a close and it's not clear what sort of intellectual leadership um, in the DSA is going to do from this point forward. This is not going to be a panel just about strategy. Uh, this is going to be a panel that really tries to bring history into the present and, and reflect on uh, how did the DSA begin as an organization and, and where is it going?
2: Certainly in the spirit of Lukács framing the, the question of history and class consciousness, how does the class consciousness of the DSA DSOC moment in the 70s compare to that of, or, or relate to that of, the say, millennial DSA?
1: The last public-facing event this convention is going to be uh, Saturday evening. It's going to be a panel called A Century of Critical Theory, The Legacy of Georg Lukács. But Lukács has been read and used and abused for a century. And we see all kinds of ways of splitting up what his importance for the left is. Um, You've got anti-Lukoc trends. You've got Lukoc that just stays in the classroom as a kind of depoliticized Lukash. You've got Lukoc that's brought into um, into present day activism and used uh, as a as a sort of theoretical figure. There, uh, you've got the, the the philosophical Western Marxist Lukacs. Uh, you've got the voluntarist Luxembourgist Lukacs. There's just so many um, various ways of reading Lukacs, and Platypus is trying to find out what is the meaning of all this. How has uh, Lukács' legacy been divided? In the intervening hundred years. And so we want to ask questions about what his original project was. What was that relationship between theory and practice? Why was he doing a close reading of Lenin and Luxembourg in the years following 1917? Um, why did he want to recover Marxist orthodoxy and what would that even mean? What did he disavow of his earlier self and what is his legacy today? It's just It's unclear how they're going to remember Lukács in the centenary, and we want to push on that.
2: We've also noticed that other left organisations are having various kinds of Lukács commemorative events. For example, the Socialist Alternative here in Melbourne are having a panel presentation about the 100th anniversary. So it certainly has a global presence, and, and we want to certainly participate in, but even lead that reflection on history and class consciousness. And who better to do it than... Three of our sort of regular or previous appearances that we've had on other platypus panels. We have Professor Andrew Feenberg from Simon Fraser University, who will be, who's a student of Marcuse and has a long history of not just academic engagement with critical theory and Lukacs particularly, but through active engagement with various left organizations and discussions and more, but more practical activity. Second of all, we have Mike McNair from the Communist Party of Great Britain, who several years ago engaged in a sort of fascinating, thrilling round of polemic with Platypus over our reading of Lukács, but also the sense that Platypus is really a glorified Lukács appreciation society, that it was one of the texts that Platypus used to sort of found and orient our project at the start in 2007. And that... Really, you can interpret a lot of our syllabus as helping you to read Lukács and, and also Karl Korsch. We really had learned a lot from that engagement with Mike And We're very, very happy that Mike McNair will come back and discuss the centenary with, of course, the deuteragonist of that uh, that conversation, which is Chris Katrone, the chief pedagogue of Platypus Affiliate Society. And I encourage everyone who's attending to have a read of the Platypus slash CBGB discourse on uh, Lukács and we'll share the link in the description to that. And so with these heavyweight thinkers and practitioners coming to town, we thought we'd queue up a second round of events for some of these big names. Uh, Particularly Mike McNair will be in conversation with Matthew Strupp from the Marxist Unity Group talking about neo-social democracy. Many members of the Marxist Unity Group describe themselves as McNairite and uh, I think this is a good opportunity to get a group of these sort of young quote neo kautskian thinkers in the DSA in conversation with someone who's laid a lot of the theoretical groundwork for their theory. So that's going to be fantastic. We also have Andrew Feinberg speaking about his new book on Marcuse, which is called A Ruthless Critique of Everything Existing. Feinberg, a student of Marcuse, sort of reflects on Marcuse's intervention in the field of critical theory, particularly in the 70s. So this year, we've also had many interactions with the Socialist Workers Party US, and we're pleased to announce that they will be sending a contingent to our convention this year. And they'll actually be participating in several of our panels, including the headline Labour in the Left panel. We've had a very, very productive sequence of engagements with them, and, and they've been fantastic on some of our panels. For example, we had Naomi Crane from the SWP on our panel, Abolition in the Left, at Northwestern late last year. And that was a real highlight for anyone who wants to check it out. But they'll be in attendance all weekend and there'll be plenty of chances for members and contacts to discuss uh, their politics and their history and and ask questions of them.
1: It really continues a platypus tradition. We have, uh, over the years, had many fruitful engagements with other left political parties of some sort. And we're hoping to continue this very fruitful engagement with the SWP after this year.
2: And lastly, we'll have Norman Finkelstein talking about his new book, I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get to It, uh, which is Heretical Thoughts on Cancel Culture and Academic Freedom. Uh, Certainly, he has a very uh, controversial past, and we hope he can share some of those reflections on that with us. So it's going to be a fantastic convention, and we hope we can all be there.
1: There'll be a sort of soft opening to this convention. There'll be events throughout the week, uh, Tuesday through Thursday, in case you're in town early and you want to check us out. Uh, Several members of Platypus will be taking part in panels on aesthetics and critical theory, on green politics, on neo kautskianism and this revival of interest in Karl Kautsky. There's going to be a workshop on socialism in Scandinavia. There's a panel on Eugene Debs and the question of American socialism, and perhaps other events. We're still planning those. Uh, More to come on those events shortly. Make sure you pay attention to us on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. If you want to learn more about this convention or ask questions on how you can attend, please email platypusvirtual at gmail.com. Well, seeing as it's the end of February
2: and it's probably going to take me about a month to fly there by plane from Australia, I should probably board a plane now in order to get there in time. But uh, I'm looking forward to meeting you, Ethan, and I'll, I'll see you there at
1: uh, the end of March. Ryan, don't get on that plane unless it has only left wings. See <laughs> so you then, <don't>
2: Ethan. <laughs>
0: A reminder that if you like the podcast, share it, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out and get a wider listening audience for the pod. The following segment is an excavation of the Platypus Archives. And we encourage any and all listeners to click through the links in the episode description, which include recordings as well as Platypus Review articles on the issue of imperialism and anti imperialism on the left. They also feature considerations by our members, including Sunit, as well as Lou, our senior editor of the Platypus Review, on the issue of the historical position by the second international on the question of imperialism so if you'd like to learn more about what we've done and educate yourself further we would encourage you to continue your dig through the archives after the segment
3: On the occasion of the year-long war in Ukraine, as well as 20 years after the invasion of Iraq, we invited our founding member Sunit as well as Farsad, who has been a member of Platypus since a couple of years, to talk with us about the archive work we have done over the years on the left's anti-imperialism and how in the present those accumulated depicted phenomena culminate. This also goes back to the very first panel Platypus ever hosted uh, with the name Imperialism. What is it? Why should we be against it? And we think it's a good opportunity to reflect on the last 17 years of Platypus and beyond. So thanks um, to the two of you for joining us today. Hi, everyone.
4: Hello, hey. So we are going to start maybe in reverse chronological order. So far sad. You were involved in organizing the Ukraine panel iterations last year. What were some moments in those panel discussions that stuck in your mind? And actually, what was the panel? Why did we put that panel on?
5: So, um, uh, for me, the reason why we put that panel on was because uh, the conflict uh, was was very surprising. Uh, I think it was very surprising to all of us and especially the people on the left. We put the panel on because we wanted to capture the reaction of uh, the left to this conflict. We didn't believe that the conflict would last that long. We thought the conflict was maybe last a month or so, and therefore we wanted to capture the left's reaction as quickly as we could um, in that moment. And we wanted to somewhat uh, have this. Uh, and the, the series uh, the, the series was an attempt to capture a moment in left in the left's history. We succeeded in that, insofar as um, we captured different perspectives, which. Uh, to an extent, don't really, don't really, aren't really present anymore on the left right now, or um, ha- and have diminished. Now, go- coming to your, like the first question you asked me, something that stuck in my mind was um, the question of anti-imperialism and anti-fascism coming up within those panels and those questions li- uh, being in the foreground. This is ironic because this was not only present within the left but also within the discussion around the whole conflict. Vladimir Putin, in his famous declaration of the Special Military Operation, refers to the war as an attempt uh, to denazify the Ukraine, because of obvious lingering influences by certain neo-Nazi groups uh, on the government. At the same time, many people in Europe compared Putin to Hitler, and this was something very interesting. Ironically enough, uh, on the Frankfurt panel, what also came up was the question of imperialism. Uh, people were discussing imperialism again, and not just uh, very abstractly, but uh, based on a concrete example, which is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And many people on the left were discussing uh, the question of imperialism and anti-imperialism with regard to that conflict. And I think those two discussions were are very central to understanding uh, the conflict as well as national self-determination, because that was also something that was very, very heavily discussed on the left and came up, uh, the national self-determination of the Ukraine and the Ukraine being a product of the the former Soviet Union. And I'd say that we did capture all these free discussions on the left. And in the Frankfurt panel, something that was very, very interesting, something that 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 uh, at first didn't really stuck with me, but now that I look back at it, it I think it did stuck with me much more. Was um, that there is a very there is like a figure that lingers in, in in this entire debate, and I think this figure is Lenin, because uh, Lenin is very is is uh, like the vital the most vital figure for understanding imperialism on the left and for discussing imperialism on the left. And I know that many leftists, especially like leftist Maoist sects and Trotskyist sects, were calling for a for revolutionary defeatism, for a, turning the war into a class war. I remember reading the article of Chris and um in the article, Ukraine more of the same essentially makes the po- makes the point that this perspective of turning the the war into a civil war is, uh, it, is it doesn't really refer to anything. It, uh, differentiating between states and the and the people within the states is not something that that is realistic. The left cannot have a meaningful perspective on this war because what is missing is a working class movement for socialism, and that is the. That is like the frame with which Lenin has a, a ended up approaching this, uh, or the frame in which this whole perspective of Lenin of turning the war into a civil war was uh, did make sense because a international working class movement existed that he could refer to, and this did not exist. And essentially, these these uh, groups, these sects, they they really the object of their of their propaganda really didn't exist. I think that was like a, a revelation or something that I realized months after the panel. I asked myself, okay, these people are talking about the proletariat, the working class, but what, what are they actually referring to? Who are they referring to?
4: Lisa, I know in addition to the Frankfurt School panel on the Ukraine war, there was also an online German language platypus panel, also on the Ukraine war, on anti-imperialism. Would I be able to ask you to come in on that? So in addition to like the Frankfurt panel, what was it that we were capturing at that moment, which I think wasn't, they were fairly close together from that, that German online panel, what else, what else kind of came to the forefront or were there very similar patterns that emerged across those two?
3: The whole Ukraine panel iterations did a great job in capturing all the different perspectives as well as positions On the at-large German online panel, we had, uh, for example, Stefan um, as a Platypus member who could push um, exactly the, who is exactly um, the audience for um, an anti-imperialist agenda right now. So who should we really engage strategically? And I mean, who is really doing something? One question that does occur also during the preparation of um, this segment for the podcast was, why does exactly the war in Ukraine help to reemerge the question of anti-imperialism? So, I mean, this is a very valid question. So why do we talk about imperialism? Yeah, maybe um, Sunit, you want to come in on this?
6: The issue of imperialism in some ways is, of course, a perennial issue for leftists. Um, It's Difficult, however, for me personally to get particularly exercised about the war in Ukraine, in part because it seems as if there's no viable leftist stance to be had that's distinguishable from anything liberal commentators may say. It just seems like the war is a catastrophic affair and that there is no left either in Russia or in the Ukraine or globally to sort of mount um, or even muster a sort of anti-war stance, uh, it does appear as if that kind of uh, anti-imperialism kind of anti-war stance isn't inhabited anywhere.
4: Sunit, you are a part of the first generation of, of Platypus. Thinking about this initial anti-war movement in Chicago that kind of gave birth to the the platypus project. I mean, maybe that's like a very vulgar way of putting it. You know, we have this this discussion that we're trying to capture in platypus about anti-imperialism in regards to the Ukraine and Russia conflict. This seems to be the way that we've started to organize the thoughts around the conflict is through the lens of anti imperialism, which has been like a almost a perennial issue on the left since uh, lenin 's pamphlet in two thousand three two thousand and four all the way up to our first panel event in two thousand and seven. What were we capturing on the left that tapped into critical consciousness of imperialism
6: sure, so i 'll speak a little bit autobiographically about the era before Platypus was founded as a formal project. And then maybe we could talk, uh, if you have other questions, about the way that the term imperialism has been used in the history of the left to think about what it meant to second international radicals. we We could attend to that as well, but what's been lost is really any sense of how it was used historically by the left In 2003, you know, I remember being at these demonstrations against the invasion of Iraq, which were organized, of course, by leftist organizations such as the ISO, the International Socialist Organization, which has since dissolved uh, and disappeared completely. And, And that's a remarkable phenomenon in its own right. They brought out. Thousands of demonstrators in Chicago and elsewhere against the invasion. And, you know, I very absent mindedly was handed a a kind of no blood for oil sign, and, and there were speeches about the economics behind the invasion. And none of that struck me as particularly convincing then there was the futility of the demonstrations themselves. And, and I recall a professor of mine, uh, the Marxist, one of the Marxists on campus being arrested. And we were all cordoned off at, at one of these large demonstrations and, and summarily arrested, most of us. and And I remember thinking, well, this was futile, right? I mean, I personally wasn't booked, but here was someone who was re-inhabiting a kind of Vietnam-era demonstration and politics that didn't seem, the slogan of kind of anti-imperialism didn't seem to have much traction. And then what's remarkable, of course, is that a lot of the anti-war sentiment was really a protest against the presidency of George W. Bush. And in substantial measure, the issue fell away the minute Barack Obama was was inducted into office in 2008. And for a substantial measure from that period, really from late 2007, which is when Platypus, uh, the Platypus Review was established in, in late 2007, Chris Catrone interviewed Tariq Ali in person at the School of the Art Institute in, in the fall of 2007. But from 2008 onward, the issue seemed to really fall off the radar. And we did do a series of panels in about 2020 around the issue of anti-imperialism, but I had to, you know, I, once again, it felt strange in that it wasn't of concern on the left. And I'm fairly distant from the debates of the younger generation of leftists such as Farsad who are thinking about the Ukraine war in, ter- in these terms. It just doesn't rise to the occasion to me to, to really talk about anti-imperialism in the in the course of this war, which just seems so utterly degraded in some ways. This really is a war between the Ukraine and Russia. It's about Putin and, and Zelensky. Um, it's difficult for me to see what the left has to contribute to that.
3: One of our members from Vienna, Matthias, recently noted that um, the millennial left was framed and shaped by the two major wars. So it's Iraq and it's Ukraine right now. As you said, Sunni, the invasion of Iraq had an anti-war movement and 20 years later, Ukraine, we don't have something like that. So what happened in those 20 years?
6: It's the further decline and disappearance of the left. In that earlier moment of the Iraq War, in the debates between the late Christopher Hitchens and Tarek Ali, in the exchanges between Chris, Katron, and the Spartacist League, there were a number of exchanges where about the issue of whether there was what kind of conditions would be propitious for the rebirth of a left in iraq for example and you know would it be under a us occupation would it be under right an islamist regime that's where the the discussion of anti-fascism versus anti-imperialism there were you could hear the remnants or echoes of much older conversations about what kind of conditions would be necessary for the rebirth of the left in iraq but really globally right And, and christopher hitchens he had become a figure who had taken a kind of apostate position as far as the left was concerned in supporting The invasion. For someone like Tariq Ali, that was completely anathema to to do so. And Hitchens was willing to say, of course, that the resistance to the war in Iraq was fascist, which Tariq Ali was unwilling to do. And anything that was a sort of a poke in the eye of the of the United States was a strike against imperialism, as far as he was concerned. And that was a kind of position that it became very Manichean, on whose side are you on? Are you for or against it? The... One of the early interventions that Platypus made that was formative in the self-education of members was an exchange that Chris had over the invasion and how the traditional Trotskyist position was not really available under the conditions of the present um, and so if we think about that debate, however sort of faint it was in terms of a memory of older positions on the left, that is what has really faded from the present as I see it is You have had the collapse, the complete disappearance, as I was saying, of the ISO, which was the chief mobilizer of those demonstrations, for example, in the U.S., um, and the kind of implosion of the SWP in in Britain in some ways over various internal scandals. That means that even the anti-imperialist stance has been largely hollowed out and evacuated.
4: Farsad, kind of looking, um, maybe coming back to like our present moment and having looked across a lot of uh, the archive, have you, h- how would you describe the kind of regression that Sunit's kind of tapping into? Did we manage to actually capture anything about the left in in 2022?
5: So uh, I remember organizing the panel and I was barely, I was just a member for, for a few months and uh, Stefan essentially, uh, me and Stefan had like a conversation after uh, the online German speaking panel I think via Zoom and Stefan told me, "Parasat, uh, you know you're organizing this panel but really uh, you, you come to appreciate a panel or you you uh, you you really just begin to understand the uh, a panel or a pur- the purpose of a panel once you've once you let time pass and return to a panel after a few years or one year or so. I really appreciate this segment because um, looking uh, now that I've returned to this panel because of you guys and uh, I've I've turned to like the the Frankfurt panel specifically. One thing that I've come to realize is. Um, that like that uh, like for instance the the perspectives that were offered uh, at that time, or um, the, the 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 way in which imperialism was framed as you as you said Lisa it was uh, like a blueprint. Uh, so they were like making out a blueprint for the way in which we, you sh- one should talk about this conflict. This is nothing new. It, it is something that, that is uh, very common on the left, and especially when going back to other pa- other German-speaking panels, you can see this. Uh, the, the way in which this, uh, this this topic is approached is uh, is the same. But but something that this all this also revealed to me is, or something that this made clear for me, is that the left doesn't actually understand imperialism. Where it, it, there is, it is in some ways confused about imperialism.
3: It's right. So how imperialism was understood was in a way as, as a policy in one way, and the other way was as a system of power. And the anti-German was very clear, for example, in uh, depicting the Frankfurt School um, and their um, theory um, on the authoritarian state, was the same as Lenin's um, anti-imperialism pamphlet. So he saw the continuity of the project that the Frankfurt School and Adorno did. And I thought it was a special moment um, of the uh, in this panel that he said I know that this is one project from Lenin and Adorno, but Adorno was wrong. So and this is why I reject all this stuff. So we don't want to go back to the second international. We don't want to think in these categories of success or failure. So he doesn't want to think politically or just in mass movements. Because it could lead to fascism. So out of, out of an anti-fascist stance, he uh, rejects um, Lenin's anti-imperialist pamphlet as well as um, the Adorno. He himself said that for him anti-imperialism is a category of thought it's an intellectual category. And I thought this is, there's also a truth in this because it's really, when we talk about anti-imperialism today, maybe it is only that.
4: One of the founding texts that the left in general refers to when talking about anti-imperialism is Lenin's pamphlet. Um, and actually it comes at a very interesting point in the primary reading group within Platypus because it is... You know, weeks and weeks leading up to it is you know these core writings from Lenin and Luxembourg during the course of the second international. And the imperialism pamphlet is very much responding to this kind of subjective crisis in the second international, where the working movement itself comes into contradiction, right? It's split by the this really rapid change in capitalism and doesn't know, and there's a, a a fight for leadership within that. And to an extent, this, this conflict within the workers' movement itself, or even the growth of the workers' movement itself, also in, is influenced by and influences imperialism in turn, right? And this is why I find the panels of the first kind of moment of Platypus with that first kind of anti-war movement Looking you know, which is framed by the the question of imperialism so interesting because they're able to have that conversation about the left, right, and this is what you were saying earlier, sunit, that especially that that panel in two thousand and seven, like every panelist is talking about what this means for the left um that this is and an, but in a negative way, right, so they're recognizing a kind of absence in in leftist politics and absence in leadership. So like Nick Kreitman, uh, who at the time was in the Young SDS. um, But also I'm trying to, I think like the guy from the Marxist humanists is also picking up on this. Um, The journalist from Open Democracy is also picking up on this. They're all really reflecting on um, how anti-imperialism needs to, to be taken responsibility of from from the left, right? And maybe this speaks to what you were saying, Sunni. You know, you'd go to these demonstrations, people would get arrested, and it might be like a really, not violent form, but it might be a very visual form of resistance. But the question of leadership and efficacy and actually what is it that we're doing here is like started to really settle into people. And that is feels very missing from the current conversation, you know, empty imperialism might might be something that we're trying to grasp at in order to find a kind of subjective factor in the left. you know we're kind of like we're you know what is it that we are doing? Where is the politics? We're coming at the end of a massive downturn after Corbin and Sanders after the covid crisis, and the left is you know, we thought it was dead back in two thousand and seven. We're able to say that. And now it's even more it's zombified, fossilized. I don't know what word I'm trying to use here.
3: When we introduce our public fora, we always say that we do our uh, panels and journalism research and so on reading groups focused on the problems and tasks inherited by the new, old, and post-political left. And I have the feeling that this moment right now all the three phenomena the new left with its anti-imperialism and third worldism as well as the old left with with anti-fascism as well as the post-political left in having really naturalized the absence of politics left politics comes together and what we see what we are seeing here is really everything coming to itself but the question is what do we do with it? So has Platypus been successful in pointing this out? Have we failed? What does it mean for for us um, as, an orga- as an organization that is moderating or hosting the conversation on the left in a way? And this goes back to the question of how much do these things um, today are... repetition of older phenomena and sunit you mentioned the Tariq ali and christopher hitchens debate and i thought it was very remarkable how much this debate between the two is um does repeat itself today especially in um christopher hitchens really i mean there is this phrase um it's not that hitchens um abandoned the left but he was abandoned by the left. So he really saw that there is this impossibility of leftist politics, but he resigned and put himself in a position of a neocon. And Tariq Ali on the other side of the debate, and both come from Trotskyism, both are um, new left leftists coming from Trotskyism, find themselves in the same position in the war um, in the Vietnam anti-war movement and then the years later um, at the anti-war movement in Iraq they found themselves on different positions. How much would you say Sunid is this um, or how much repetition is there today?
6: I think that there is a constant repetition and a constant repetition with a regression um, in that Today, the debate about whether it's NATO that is the imperialist superpower, or whether it's Russia seeking to reimpose its empire to its west, that in this way, the idea that leftists simply have to decide, right, who is the sort of fascist, is it Putin, is it uh, it the the forces within the Ukrainian army, Um, or is it uh, who's the imperialist? All of this sort of assumes that we can re-inhabit stances that were once available on the historical left. And I think part of the discussion this afternoon has been about thinking precisely how Even with the Iraq war, it was really evident that there was an inadequacy to both Tariq Ali's position and Christopher Hitchens' position, right? Meaning that Hitchens, as a sort of anti-fascist stance, was not particularly adequate to thinking about the U.S. and its role in the war, um, and Tariq Ali in insisting that that was all that mattered—that the U.S. had invaded—was in that way pirouetting into the arms, you know, of the Islamists in, in in a in some sense. And so, neither of those stances was really available anymore in two thousand three, seven, than it is today. Uh, And we would do well to register that the kind of understanding of imperialism has become completely degraded on the left. And re-inhabiting, in that sense, the debates between Kautsky and Luxembourg and Lenin and Hilferding right? I mean, really to try to make sense of Lenin's critique of Kautsky and Hilferding, his disputes with Luxembourg, that it isn't, it seems very esoteric um, to young leftists of why should we re-inhabit those debates. But what becomes clear is just how the concept of imperialism has been Attenuated and flattened out to really mean just aggression or some vague sense of economic imperialism some you know there, there there's a reduction of politics to economics oh well we the u s invaded Iraq right I remember those debates about it uh, it has invaded Iraq because Saddam Hussein is going to forsake the dollar as the currency for um for oil, um, or some explanation that was supposedly materialist, all of those sorts of issues continue to reproduce themselves on the left. And without studying the debates, one feels like they're always on some new uncharted frontier, uh, whereas in fact, they're actually falling below the threshold of debates that were once had at, with some degree of sophistication.
3: So I remember one situation on the panel in in Frankfurt, Farsad, where the, I don't know who it was, but he was like, okay, Luxembourg was right um, on the question of self-determination, Lenin was wrong, because um, the the right of self-determination is itself nationalism and um the left shouldn't be nationalist and i remember the other two speaker were like okay but you know it was a historical um situation there it was a little it it was tactics and um if and then and then suddenly so this was this was the good part um in it and then they they tried to transfer it to today so if today these people ask for their right of self-determination. We have to give it to them so and then they use Lenin and Luxembourg to make these liberal democratic um political horizons and uh, positions trying to to make it a leftist position just in referencing Luxembourg and Lenin and I thought this was interesting because there was one part in your panel, Sunid, in 2020, um, where you talked with the leftists from...
6: Chernoa.
3: Yeah, yeah. It was the whole idea of the trap of nationalism, so that the left of the late 20th century fell into the trap of nationalism and has failed exactly to render imperialism as the last stage of capitalism. So... We do remember all these things. We do remember Lenin, we do remember Luxembourg. The left does reference this history but at the same time does repress it. And the um avoidance comes in putting all these texts into the present. Maybe we can talk about these political horizons because the political horizon from the past of the the, the texts um and the audience these texts um point to were different and the political horizons were very much different than today where anti-imperialism has no other political horizon than just keeping up with the status quo and i do remember chris saying on the um on the interview um of um, his Gilded Age article that it was exactly Woodrow Wilson and um, William Jennings Bryan who had an anti-imperialist position from a bourgeois, democratic, liberal point of view. And yeah, it was exactly Woodrow Wilson who wanted to create independent nation-states after the First World War.
6: Indeed, and the left would have opposed him on that, right, uh, in thinking precisely about how nationalism is the obstacle, or at least for most of the 20th century, it was the case that nationalism was understood to be the obstacle to socialism. Um, and and so we have to think about the sort of antinomy that's been opening up throughout the 20th century between kind of democracy, democratic rights, and, and capitalism, and to think about the failure of the left to be able to address that, the, that antinomy in, you know, uh, in in our day. It's, is it a leftist stance to support Scottish independence? Are the, are the Scots a sort of oppressed nationality within Great Britain? You know there are iterations of this within the Communist Party in America on whether African Americans constituted an oppressed nationality and do, were they being, inter, you know, internally colonized. This sort of debate, there the confusions really go back. I, I think Farsad marked out in some of his opening remarks there that. A challenge is in thinking about anti-imperialism and anti-fascism together and how anti-imperialism, some anti-fascists became anti-imperialists, anti-imperialists often had their roots in anti-fascism um, and how all of these issues of national self-determination and imperialism simply become are about a kind of undigested history of the left, right? So uh, what you're marking out, Lisa, is that people invoke Lenin and Luxembourg. But to digest that history, one actually has to think about what those debates about in any given moment were, were about, uh, instead of turning them into abstract principles to uphold I- into the present.
4: Okay, everyone. We, I, I we want to thank all of you, Sunit, Farsad for coming on to the latest platypus archive segment. We can we will have links to all of the resources mentioned, so the panels more recently. So in 2022, panels extending all the way back to 2007 with an on imperialism articles, interviews they'll all be in the description for the podcast. Um, but for now, Want to say a massive thank you. I hope you guys have a lovely, lovely evening. Well, for me, it's the evening. Sunny, you said it's the afternoon. This is the this is the weird thing about time, time zones. Goodbye, everyone. Take care.
5: Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye.
0: This has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society, featuring original tracks by Thomas Delagy. Platypus is an international membership-based organization that hosts reading groups, public fora, research, and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication, The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about Platypus, or to access the entire archive of Platypus Reviews and panel recordings, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Bye!